Our uh, sermon reading today, our first sermon reading today comes from the book of uh, Joshua. I'll be reading the first chapter. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the goring down of the sun, shall be your territory." No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving to you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he is to you. And they also all should take possession of the land that the Lord God has given them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, all that you commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he has with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandments and disobeys your word, whatever you command shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. And our New Testament passage comes from Ephesians. Uh, this is chapter four. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, 
until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So uh, for the past few weeks, uh, Chris has been uh, working through a series on Christ and identity. And uh, identity is, has become one of those really important issues in our national discourse over the last few years. It's a topic that we seem to think about quite a bit now. Our country has become increasingly divided over what group we identify with and how identifying with that group influences our beliefs and behaviors. We have become divided on issues of gender, race, social class, and those divisions have driven our politics and even our religious beliefs. Debates about critical race theory, the role of women in our church, and gender roles in marriage uh, have become uh, common. They fueled new debates and they've split churches. Uh, The term evangelical even now has fought over. It's moved from defining a set of theological commitments to more of a political category, with more people identifying themselves as evangelical and yet fewer people attending evangelical churches. Uh, Tribalism is another word that has been increasingly used to describe how commitment to our particular tribe outweighs all other considerations like truth or objectivity or empathy and morality. And therefore, loyalty to the tribe becomes the highest ideal where the world is divided into us and them. So as Christians, how are we to respond? Uh, We need to think about uh, this particular moment that we live in. Uh, What do we do in this current state of affairs? And on the one hand, uh, we in the church see ourselves as a distinctive people. We have a distinctive set of beliefs. On the other hand, we are also called to be a people who love their neighbors, who consider others before themselves and pledge loyalty to Christ rather than family or tribe or king or nation state. As Paul famously said in Galatians, in Christ Jesus, there is no Jew or Greek. Uh, There is no slave or free, male or female. When Jesus is asked, what is the mark of those who comprise the kingdom of God? Jesus responds with two principles, not one, but two principles, love of God and love of our neighbor. The particularity of allegiance to God and the universality of concern for the other are held together. Jesus makes it clear that adopting one means adopting the other. Therefore, the ideal for our faith is the creation of of, of what N.T. Wright terms a, a multicultural fictive kinship group. It's a group that transcends division, that transcends hierarchy and boundaries, And yet that ideal seems to be frustrated by those within our own ranks. These are the sort of issues that I want to talk about, that I want to work through as we seek to be called to be a people loyal to the teachings of Christ and who bear his name, but yet also seek to be a people who rise above division and fear, who embrace the other and seek peace and reconciliation through the ideal of grace. 
And we need to think through these issues because this task is not simple. It's daunting because we live this ethic out in a world that is broken and fallen. This limits our ability to project this ideal. And thus, it requires wisdom rather than easy solutions. So in order to think through these issues, uh, we're going to actually turn to the book of Joshua. Now, in many ways, this is not the book you would pick for this job. Uh, Joshua is essentially an account of the Israelites, God's chosen people, who are organized into literal tribes who wipe out the ethnically and religiously distinct Canaanites violently and without mercy. It's a problematic text. I don't really want to work through it. It's embarrassing for those Christians, uh, like many of us, uh, who rightly see the teachings of Christ as advocating nonviolence and love of our enemies. In fact, the book of Joshua has been used by Christians throughout history to justify religiously sanctioned violence because doing so in the service of the true God makes it okay. So what do we do with a book that seems to lend credence to the increasing Christian nationalism and its accompanying violence that seems to be infected so many of our churches? Um, I can remember once uh, at a men's group uh, a few years ago, and uh, we were talking about a, a movie that had come out uh, called We Were We Were Soldiers. Uh, and uh, that, that movie, if you remember the, about the movie, it's an account of an early battle in the Vietnam War. And before the battle, there's a scene where the main character, who's the leader of the troops, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore, prays alongside one of his soldiers. And he ends the prayer with these words, Dear Lord, about our enemies, ignore their heathen prayers and help us blow those little bastards straight to hell. Amen. And I remember being shocked because my friends expressed glee, like this is the kind of prayer that we need to be praying. And uh, it was pretty uncomfortable. Um, Hopefully uh, it makes you uneasy as well. Um, I know many of you have uh, recently heard or read or talked about the uh, book Jesus and John Wayne. And so you know how pervasive this attitude is in this uh, church and probably in the church and probably no book in the Bible probably supports these ideas more than Joshua. But I want to challenge this idea that Joshua is a triumphant militaristic xenophobic text, though it's often read that way. In fact, I want to present Joshua as deeply subversive. Let me explain what I mean by that. So probably everyone here is familiar with the uh, 1984 song by Bruce Springsteen, Born in the USA. I get some nods on that one. You can probably hear the chorus going through your head right now. As soon as I say it. I bet Brian Sutton's maybe even playing air guitar right now. Uh, But if you've, uh, ever since it's been released, it's been played at sporting events, and it's even become a staple at political rallies, uh, attempting to evoke uh, a feeling of patriotism. Uh, blue jeans, white t-shirt, there's an American flag on the cover of the album, and it's got, you know, rock and roll. What's more American than that? Uh, and it seems, all of that seems to work together to support the image. However, if you know anything about the song, uh, the words of the verses are basically a direct contrast to that, uh, the rock anthem chorus uh, that, that is going through your head probably still right now. Uh, what the rest of the song does is it tells the story of a desperate working class Vietnam veteran in order to expose the emptiness of the American ideal that's expressed in the chorus. So 
you've got the chorus seeming to advocate one position, whereas the verses seem to advocate another. And that's what I want to argue that uh, Joshua functions the same way. On its surface, Joshua is the militaristic triumphal text. But hidden within that text are continual challenges to the viewpoint that should make us think uh, about uh, these issues about identity and tribalism and us and them. So as we work our way through Joshua, the key here is to pay attention to those subversive challenges uh, that we find uh, in that in that, we're going to see the true message of Joshua, uh, just as the verses and the chorus of Born in the USA are juxtaposed, uh, then we'll see these two themes of distinct group identity where Israel is set apart as God's chosen people will will play alongside uh, stories that are at variance with this idea. And it's this interplay, this juxtaposition, and this resistance to the simplicity of us versus them that makes this book such a fascinating book. And it's one of the things I want to talk about. Uh, it, it basically subverts itself at every turn, and it forces us to consider these questions of identity in a more mature way. They require wisdom rather than simple answers. And, you know, Joshua's not alone in this. In fact, I want to argue that that's part of the problem of how we interpret uh, the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. The Bible loves doing this. Um, it's constantly in conversation with itself. Uh, the, the big uh, theological term we use for this is it's dialogical. Uh, it's not a straightforward list of propositions and principles. It's a dialogue. So, for example, think about it. There's Proverbs. So we're all familiar with Proverbs. We like Proverbs. It's really simple, like do this and this will happen. That's cool. Uh, wisdom, we get that. But then right after Proverbs, what book do we read? Like Ecclesiastes. So read Ecclesiastes right after you read Proverbs, and it's just like, boom, mind blown. You know, the world doesn't make sense. There's no point to it. It's like, what does Proverbs have to do with Ecclesiastes? Well, they're right beside each other, and the Bible makes us deal with that. Um, you know, take the book of Nahum. In Nahum, the Assyrians are like terrible people, and uh, he's taking glee in the destruction of Nineveh. But then... You also have the book of Jonah, uh, where the Assyrians can be redeemed. And Jonah, who doesn't think they can, uh, is chastised for thinking other words. And so that's why this common practice we have in the church uh, of what's called proof texting. Uh, when we lift individual verses out of their, concept, out of their, their um, context and we develop a principle based solely on that verse without reference to anything else, uh, it, it's such a poor way to understand Scripture. Life is not straightforward. It's complex. It's contradictory and it's messy. And I think one of the things that we need to embrace is the fact that the Bible actually does a great job of reflecting that if we learn to read it that way. So let us look at chapter one and we'll see how Joshua begins to introduce us to these ideas. Now, Way of background, if you're not some like Bible history nerd who, uh, like me, spends all his time thinking about this stuff and working it out. Uh, what we have is uh, the book of Joshua takes place about 40 years after the Israelites have been freed from slavery to Moses in Egypt. Uh, free, freed from slavery uh, to Pharaoh by Moses. Uh, the Israelites have spent 40 years in the wilderness. They face various challenges to their existence. They've been given the Torah or the law. 
It's a new way of living in the world, different from the slavery and oppression found in Egypt. And the Torah depends on a special relationship called the covenant, in which God has pledged himself to the Israelites, and they have sworn allegiance to God. And for this reason, other gods and their accompanying systems of thought, like that of Egypt, must be resisted. If God is to redeem his creation through Israel, they must live out this new existence in the world. And that will take place in the land that God has promised them, this land of Canaan that is now standing before them. Uh, Their leader Moses has just died, and now the leadership has passed to Moses' protege Joshua, who along with the Israelites is now located across from Canaan on the east bank of the Jordan River. So that's where we are. Now, what we have at the beginning of the book of Joshua is this ragtag band of nomadic refugees with very little resources who are now opposing the dominant power of the region, the Canaanites. And throughout the book of Joshua, we're going to see lots of parallels to the Exodus, indicating that we are kind of supposed to think of the Canaanites in a similar way that we think of the Egyptians. So uh, God begins to speak in the first verses of our passage in Joshua. And what he does is he connects the story of Joshua with the previous story of Moses, of Exodus, and the liberation of the Israelites. And particularly important is God's reminder that he is beginning to fulfill the promises that he made to Moses, but also to their uh, great ancestor, Abraham. And that promise that he's fulfilling is this gift of the land of Canaan. Uh, The description of the extent of the promised land uh, here in Joshua is taken from Deuteronomy 11, but it's also very similar to passages going all the way back to the first time it's promised to Abraham in Genesis 15. Now, what is interesting in God's speech is that the greatest threat to the Israelites in acquiring this land of Canaan is not as we might suspect the Canaanites. Look at verse 7. Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of law of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So the point is, what God uh, wanted the Israelites to know is that the greatest threat to acquiring the land is disobedience. While the land is given to uh, them by God as a gift, its decision, its possession is dependent on Israel's obedience. Obedience to the law and its connection to success is a major theme in Joshua. And what we will see is that applying the law to actual lived experience is rarely cut and dry. It's not as easy as one might think. It requires something more, wisdom, and how that wisdom plays out and which principles uh, from the law are flexible, and which principles are more rigid, is an important part of Joshua, as it is really the whole rest of the Bible. Now, if we look to the the next major speech in verse 12 through 15, we read about a tribal concern. So again, we're dealing with one of the big questions Joshua is exploring, this interplay between unity and distinction. 
so the situation is this, okay? So you look at 12 and 15 and you're like, what the heck is going on? Well, you got to read Deuteronomy to understand. But way back in Deuteronomy, Moses had made a special deal with the tribes Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And the deal was this. The Israelites were on the east bank of the Jordan River. And some of the tribes began looking around and noticed that the land around them looked pretty good. And also, as anyone who's ever played the game Oregon Trail knows, crossing rivers is hard. And so they asked Moses if they could just take this land for themselves rather than have to cross the Jordan and go into the land of Canaan. And at first, Moses was upset by this. But when the tribes promised that they would fight alongside the Israelites to secure the land of Canaan, uh, Moses agreed to this deal. So Joshua here wants these tribes, the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, to know that he intends to honor this agreement. However, Joshua also reminds them that they will not realize rest until all of Israel is given the land and is at rest. The three eastern tribes must share in the struggles of all the Israelites. And so the leaders of the three tribes agree to this with their enthusiastic response in verse 16. All that you have commanded, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. So that's the first chapter of Joshua. Now, that leads to a question. What are we supposed to do with this weird passage about land possession and half-tribes? Uh, it's a fair question because probably nothing can be more remote from our everyday experience than these ancient nomads with their tribes getting ready to cross a river and wrest control of the patch of land from any other ancient people. This is not a position I find myself in, neither probably most of you. However, if we look at this passage, there's a major concern for unity within the people of Israel. So unity is a key theme here. Uh, so, uh, of course, this is Resurrection Church, so we've got to learn a, a, a foreign word. We've got to learn, a, a, you know, we've got to do a word study. So the Hebrew word kol, okay, K-O-L, uh, means all or every. And it's repeated 12 times in these 18 verses. All the people, every place, all the land, all that is written, all the warriors, all you have commanded, every place you send us, obey Moses in all things, all who rebel. And this repetition of the word coal is trying to force us to see that this unity is a key theme. How is this motley group of refugee nomads and their tribes and half-tribes to be united? How are we, as a church, not just in Hillsborough, but a church that spans the rest of the world, made of all sorts of people and nations and languages and groups to be united? And I think it's here that we can find a message for us in this book of Joshua. So let's see what we can learn from this. First, uh, no one can be considered at rest unless we are all at rest. Like the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, it may be that we have received a rest and that we are at peace. However, we continue to have a duty and responsibility to join in the struggle of all our sisters and brothers until they have achieved rest and peace as well. Unity must built, be built on the principle that we all share in the fight. We have a position of privilege, but that does not absolve us from our collective responsibility. Instead, we should use that position of privilege to help our community. 
If the church struggles in China, then we have a duty to join this struggle. If African-American Christians or Hispanic Christians or the poor, the disabled, or any group of Christians struggle, then we join with them. Remember, as it says in Philippians, our favorite passage in Philippians chapter 2, our Lord did not count equality with God a good thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. We must do the same. Second, uh, our unity is not defined by geography or place. Uh, The promised land wasn't meant to include the east bank of the Jordan. But as we will see as we work through Joshua, boundaries become another important theme and what those boundaries can and cannot symbolize. The Jordan River does not define God's promise. Neither does geography or any type of place. Rather, it's the relationship between God and his people, a relationship that is dynamic and interactive that defines God's promise. So that's number two. Third, Unity is based on obedience to God and his laws. And God's laws are based on the relationship between God and his people, which is about allegiance to God. Allegiance to God and therefore obedience to his teachings and wisdom should bind us together rather than a common goal or a common enemy. Notice in verse 7 that when God urges the people to be strong and courageous, that he does not go on to do what we would normally do in this situation where we're opposing a foreign country. He doesn't introduce a battle strategy or a military plan. That is because it isn't fighting a common enemy that builds true unity, but rather God's plan to create a new people founded on the principles of love of God and love of neighbor in opposition to the world of Egypt that the people had delivered from with its love of self and power and wealth and the accompanying oppression that results. Now, God's laws become fully manifest in the teachings of Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares that his teachings fulfill the law. So it's there. It's in the teachings of Christ, in the words of Christ, that we find our unity. As Paul says in our New Testament passage from Ephesians, we are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Uh, Just as the ancient Israelites were to obey the Torah, we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Look at verse 2 in our passage from Ephesians 4. We are to bear with one another in love. Now that sounds a lot like this principle Joshua uh, talked about, with the which the eastern tribes accepted, uh, that they were supposed to fight for their fellow Israelites. Then, as Ephesians four continues, Paul reminds us that we are united by one Spirit, one Lord, one God. We are one people, not by ethnicity or geography or any other cultural marker, but rather by our relationship with God just like the Israelites were bound together by the covenant. Now, if we look at verse 11 of our passage, Paul tells us that this group was given the teachings of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers in order to build up the body of Christ until they attain the unity of faith, which is comprised of the knowledge of the Son of God and the fullness of Christ. And the result of that is we become truly united because we will no longer be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine. So for the Israelites, the danger was the idolatry of the Canaanites. 
For us, it's alternative thought systems that demand our allegiance, whatever they may be, materialism or late-stage neoliberal capitalism or whatever. The names may be different, but it's still idolatry. And honestly, it probably doesn't work out that much different in practice. The result is oppression and exploitation that the power in the hands of flawed human beings always leads to. However, the goal of us as a people United by a relationship with God and obedient to Christ's teaching is what Paul says in verse 15, to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That is what unites us. Christ is the fullness of the law that Joshua commanded the people not to turn right or left from. And Christ's teaching should not depart from our mouths. And they are what we should meditate on day and night. It is Christ and his teachings that should make us strong and courageous. The result is that when, we, uh, when each part works properly, we are built up. Not in conquest as in Joshua, but as Ephesians tells us, but in love. Israel never defeated its enemies. Empire after empire kept rising up. If it wasn't the Egyptians and Canaanites, it was the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. They wanted a warrior God. They wanted kings. They felt the way of the, they tried the way of force. But ultimately, what takes down all our enemies, the enemies of power, is the self-sacrificing love in the form of Jesus on a cross. Let us therefore look to Christ and not turn from Christ to the right or left, or let Christ's teachings depart from our mouth, but instead let us meditate them on the day and night. For this is the basis for our unity.